and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, uh, and I am streaming live from downtown Boise, Idaho today. Um, beautiful winter weather, I guess. Not super cold, but there's a little bit of snow on the ground. And I'm kind of excited for seasons to be changing. Um, looking forward to snowboarding here shortly. Mountain biking season's kind of over anyway. And you don't want to miss out on today's show because we have Dr. Eli Giroux on our show. And this is our midweek podcast as we usually do on Wednesdays and Thursdays. So thank you for tuning in today. And you do not want to miss out on this show because Dr. Giroux is going to share his story, his weight loss journey story. And as you guys know, um, I have a story of weight loss and how it changed my life, my family's life, and my patients' lives. So Dr. Giroux, without further ado, welcome to our show. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. By the way, as much as you make it sound, it's cool to have snow on the ground. I'm happy with my 75 degree. <laughs> well, tell us, tell us, where are you from? Where are you at right now? Uh, I'm in Houston, Texas. Uh, oh, awesome. Houston, Texas. All right. Another Texan. We are really, uh, my wife and I are, are really looking into expanding our pharmacy into Texas. So we got awesome. another friend. We got another friend in Texas. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I gotta say, you know, especially as my wife and I get older, and I don't want to say we're old because our life's just getting started, but, um, you know, she's from North Dakota, so she knows what cold is really like, but man, she is just complaining about cold and she wants to move to Arizona or Texas or something like that, so. You blame her. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. It is, it is nice, although I will say you guys don't get quite as hot in Houston as like Phoenix and stuff, but. I will say that seasons are nice. I really like seasons. Yeah, that's true. That is. Yeah. So, Dr. Jerouge, tell us about your story. You have a weight loss journey story. When did that happen? Yeah. So, I'm traditionally trained doctor. So, kind of go through, went through medical school and residency training. And during that time, eating really terrible food and junk food and being just on the go and studying, I really trashed my body for, for several years. And I gained over a span of seven to eight years, about 35 pounds. Um, didn't notice because it was kind of gradual and blamed it on relative aging, you know, right. late 20s, early 30s. Um, then I started having, I've always had chronic back discomfort. Uh, but then one day, late 20s, uh, I was putting pants on, my back gave up. Uh, and that time, I didn't think much of it, but I was miserable for two weeks, uh, back spasms, I couldn't move, I have to be on the ground. And then uh, I just felt miserable. It took a while to recover from it. But then for the following two years, I kept having these flare-ups. If I tried to work out, my back is play tennis, my back is out. So I tried to get healthy, move more and do stuff, but just couldn't get any better. And went to physical therapists, doctors, uh, get MRIs of my back. There's nothing physically wrong with me. Uh, so, and I was just not feeling well, energy low, I started to have pressure in my early thirties, uh-huh. developed kind of insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, my waist kind of increased like six inches over span of 10 years. Uh, and I wasn't happy. I was like, no, I'm too young for this. Uh, and as a doctor who, you know, tell people, I was used to pass judgment. Like people look overweight, have diabetes, I tell them, well, just, it's your food. Uh, but I didn't click that I was eating unhealthy and I thought I just have to control what I'm eating, how much I'm eating, kind of traditional sense and exercise, burn these calories. And I couldn't get healthy. I actually kept flaring up. 
And then uh, one of my worst episodes, uh, I was like, I knew something would change. And at that time, I was introduced to uh, a Whole30 program, uh, which is a paleo program. And okay. uh, uh, paleo with the psychology of food, the idea, this is the hard work. It starts with food. I think she wrote a book that 2014 or so. Uh, and I thought that that's where I started. And it talks about how, you know, different you know, grains and legumes uh, and carbohydrates and sugar and all that stuff and eat real food. And I did that for a month. And it was like a completely different person, 15 pounds lighter in a month. And my back was like 80% better. Yeah. Uh, so I was really intrigued. Uh, so I did it another month and I lost another five pounds. So 20 pounds in two months and feeling fantastic. Uh, back, you know, 10, 20%. So I knew it was there, uh, but I had to. But then I thought, okay, I'm done. I'm happy. So let's go back to the old lifestyle because I missed my whatever junk food that I was used to eat. I'm like any human being. And as soon as I did that, my back flared up again. I just wasn't feeling good. And you feel it worse when you go clean and actually come back to eating junk food. Um, so that kind of threw me off. And, I, uh, and at that time, I, was, I, was, I did full paleo and I did it for a while. Uh, but I wasn't very satisfied. I wanted my dairy, I wanted cheese, and things like that. So, and then keto was hot in 2016, 17, but I was very nervous. I'm a physician and fat and heart disease and all these things. So I was very scared to get into that. But the more I started reading, um, uh, the more I kind of got comfortable with the idea. I was like, I want to try it. And that's when I tried keto for three months straight. Uh, and I lost another 10 pounds. At that point, I was 30 pounds down. One of the latest times of my life, feeling amazing. Um, and then, uh, so I thought keto is the thing. But, so, but towards the end, I started having a rash, a keto rash, because I was diving into keep the deep ketosis. And I could never understand the rash. I would get it on my neck, on my chest, yeah. very itchy. And I Googled the heck out of it. And all I can see is that benign condition will go away. So I pushed through, pushed through, pushed through. And I, uh, that wouldn't get better. I took supplements and things like that. I feel amazing, but I'm like itching. I'm starting to scar. Uh, and then I was at a conference and somebody told you and me, you're probably not eating enough protein. Um, and at that time, I was doing traditional keto, which is extremely low carb, moderate protein. At that time, it's like, you know, you shouldn't eat too much protein for a reason. And then uh, very high amount of fat. So... I modified that. I started eating more protein, lowered my fat content. Then I, I got interested in carnivore lifestyle. So I jumped into that. And I felt amazing, the best at uh, doing, doing the carnivore. I lost another five pounds. I didn't know I had another five pounds to lose. And then that happened. Uh, so when that happened, it was like a complete like connecting the dots of lifestyle and the body and things that were changing. So along the way, I was just picking up pictures. Pick, bits and pieces, uh, but then I kind of, the whole picture came together that there's so many tools and fasting, intermittent fasting. I mean, we all read the same books, you know, the obesity code, diabetes code, right. how we got, how we get fat. And I was just reading and listening to podcasts and then I could not stop uh, learning about this. And I was fascinated. And then as a hospitalist, which is a physician, primary care doctor in the hospital setting, uh, all my patients are, have complications of chronic diseases. And I started seeing them for, with a different. I used to think that these diseases are, you know, just going to get worse. 
Um, but as I got healthier, I just wanted to help them and it, it became very frustrating uh, to do that. But and uh, at the end of the day, after the carnivore and I went back to like mostly carnivore, uh, eat some vegetables. So I'm kind of an animal based kind of nutrition and I feel amazing and I use all these tools different times. And, and, I, and then I ended up uh, becoming a health coach because during the pandemic, everybody was gaining weight, everybody was isolated. And uh, it was ideal time to jump into the online space. And I started tweeting and get active and then help people uh, get healthier. And um, and that's how uh, it all started about half a year. Yeah, and that's how I found you. I found you on Twitter. So I'm glad that you were there. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about um, how this has changed. You, you, you spoke to it a little bit, but how has this changed your the way you approach patient care now. Yeah. So I don't have clinic in my full-time job. Uh, so as a hospitalist, every patient that comes to the hospital, you just manage the acute issues. They come with a heart attack, stroke, uh, pneumonia, uh, pancreatitis, whatever you name it, uh, uh, conditions related to diabetes complications. Uh, you just manage them. You make sure they survive and you send them out to their doctor and then give them standard advice you know, take care of your diabetes, take your medications, uh, you should exercise, you know. Uh, and then they, and then you realize after a few years, you're seeing the same patients revolve through that right. door. And over the years, they're actually getting sicker and sicker. And then we have this cognitive dissonance, you know, okay, we did my part, now it's on them. Uh, but then the, the, the pivotal moment was I had a lady uh, who had fatty liver disease, severe enough where she was going to liver uh, and, uh, and that's completely dietary. So this one was not alcohol related? Non-alcoholics, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And she's, the liver is so bad that she was getting confused. Um, every, all her numbers was really, she was morbidly obese. And uh, the husband was there with a quadruple bypass a year before that, but they were desperate. They did not want a liver transplant. Luckily, the biopsy of the liver it was not cirrhotic, it's not scarred yet. So there is room for improvement, but the standard advice was, you know, lose weight and take this medicine. Let's work you up for transplant. And this is when I took a leap of faith. I thought, oh, look, this is not medical advice, but this is what I would do personally. Stop everything fructose, sugar. At that time, fructose was big on my mind. I was really notorious for uh, causing fatty liver disease resistance. Um, so I, I totally, you know, start fasting cut down the sugar, the carbohydrates, eat more protein, just live a healthier lifestyle and you can reverse. I, don't, I can't promise you that, but I think if you do it long enough, you will. She took it to heart and then she started doing it uh, and her husband started doing it. And six months later, I checked on them and she's not on transplant list. Her liver was completely normal, almost normal. She lost like, I don't know, she said she's been the thinnest in, in, in many, many, many years. And that was like, realized the power of the right advice and helping people change the trajectory. If she had a liver, yeah, but she'd be on immunosuppression and a lot of complications and, uh, you know, it's just never ending uh, chronic disease saga. So that was uh, an example of how it changed my yeah, life. Yeah, that's life-changing. Now, can you speak to, not just for our listeners and viewers, but also for me, can you speak to how, you know, we think traditionally when we hear about, and you know, when I went to pharmacy school almost 30 years ago, well, 30 years ago, um, 
you know, we didn't have the obesity problem that we have in the United States now. So we didn't hear about fatty liver disease for anybody. Usually the only people that had fatty liver disease were alcoholic. Yeah. You know, so can you speak to that, how carbohydrates and diet affects your liver? Sure. Well, liver, everything goes through the liver. Once you eat, I mean, it has to be basically handled in the liver. So uh, we, without, before the Western diet, the protein was relatively low on carbohydrates and the liver is meant to kind of have a, fat, a quick storage place for, uh, for, for glucose to be used as needed in a glycogen form and, uh, right. you know, handles protein, hand, handles a lot of things uh, and handles toxins all when you drink a lot of alcohol, you overwhelm the liver and the liver has to remove the alcohol, making it too toxic to less toxic form and stores it in fat or glycerol and triglycerides. And eventually you reach a point it can't handle it and it stores that fat in the tissue. Um, when you have too much carbohydrates, especially fructose, which cannot handle, be handled much in the rest of the body, except maybe a little bit in the gut, mostly in the liver, we're taking it in pharmacological doses. It's one thing to eat a piece of fruit, another thing to have a high fructose corn syrup or these, uh, a lot of juice and just you name it. And people already are overweight and have insulin resistance. So genetically, some people can gain more weight than others before they develop this fatty liver disease. But if everybody, if you eat bad enough, you're going to get it. And then that, that liver develops, uh, kind of deposits in the liver sorry, that fat deposits in the liver and congestion and then become very insulin resistant where insulin kind of works in the liver too, makes it much harder to do its job. And it's just the problem spirals and eventually you get diabetes, fatty liver disease, diabetes, prediabetes, high blood pressure, all these diseases are basically the same uh, problem. So, and then you reach a point of cirrhosis if you leave it uh, intact. When I went to medical school, liver... Alcohol was number one cause of cirrhosis. Fatty right. liver was second. Now it's the other way. Now fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the number one cause of cirrhosis and liver transplant. Wow. We're costing the system billions of dollars based on a dietary disease. Uh, so, and, you know, they spend a lot of money perfecting. I mean, they do an amazing job with these transplants. People survive. But that's, the backward way of approaching. Yeah, it's not, you know, like you say, you're on medications that cause side effects and, yeah. you know, a People lot of get infections, cancer, because all the immune system is, uh, is yeah. you have to keep it uh, controlled. And isn't it true that a liver transplant, like most transplants, only last a maximum of 20 years? Is that true? I'm not sure. I, I've seen people have... I mean, no, most people, I don't know, honestly, I don't know the exact okay. answer, but I think I've seen people have it for 10, 15, 20 years, they're fine. Uh, but most people end up getting some sort of complications as they get older with the liver. And also most people getting liver transplant, they're already in the mid to late, uh, like late 50s, 60s. So 15, 20 years, they're already into their 70s and they have other health issues that come up. So they end up, a lot of them dying, not particularly from liver failure, but complications related in one way or another to this right. problem because most of them never change their diet after that that's and that's part of the problem yeah. but you're telling me that this is all reversible it doesn't need to happen it does not need to happen yes when it's when you reach cirrhosis too late then you don't have a choice uh but if you're not scarred you can reverse it so same thing with 
heart, you know, you can reverse heart disease if you don't have a heart attack and scar. If you don't have a stroke and part of your brain is dead, you can reverse a lot of these risk factors. Same thing, kidney disease related to diabetes. So a lot of things you can reverse right. them. It's amazing. So tell, tell us, tell us about diabetes. Cause that, that's a, that's a big one. Um, and you know, I will tell you, and I've said this many times before, my wife and I are both pharmacists and we do not believe in medication to treat type two diabetes long-term. Right. We just, um, can you speak to that? Sure. So just to differentiate for people, type one and type two, just kind of big, big umbrellas. Type one is you're not making insulin in autoimmune disease. So a lot of people have childhood, it's a different problem. Although in the current lifestyle, type one can have a kind of superimposed almost type two from right. doing the bad diet. But type two is basically a dietary disease where you eat bad enough for long enough where you develop insulin resistance and it's a spectrum of, uh, you know, you gain weight and then you become pre-diabetic, develop diabetes. And then once you hit diabetes, uh, you're basically what happening is your insulin, your body, as much as insulin, as much as it pumps insulin out, it cannot store that glucose and it's floating in the bloodstream. And that glucose is toxic uh, to be in the bloodstream. We're supposed to have maybe a teaspoon worth of uh, glucose in the blood uh, at any one point. Uh, but you, you have much more than that, and it's floating around and causing uh, eye damage, vascular damage, a lot of other uh, terrible things that happen. And so how do we treat it? Uh, the, uh, in type 1, you don't make insulin. You get insulin. makes sense. In type 2, you start, the early drugs were metformin, which is fine, makes your liver a little bit more insulin sensitive. I understand. But after that, a lot of the drugs that were made were basically squeeze insulin out of your pancreas, if you will, uh, to kind of make more insulin. But the problem was never not enough insulin. And that's where we got it wrong in uh, the healthcare system is all these drugs, actually, they make you gain weight. So over time, they make, give you, make your diabetes worse. So you, have, you need more medications to treat the, that. And we were approaching diabetes as making the glucose look pretty. So you can... And then that fails and you end up on insulin. Uh, of course, if you shove enough insulin in the system, you're going to shove that glucose in, but it comes at a cost of worse obesity. It is known these drugs cause weight gain and insulin cause weight gain. Now there are other classes of drugs that don't work that way, but still the concept is the problem is here. It starts here <laughs> and, <laughs> and, it, it's, and the solution starts here. You cannot fix it with pills. You can make it look pretty. Yeah. So people think of the hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of how controlled your glucose is. So once they check off the box or have a good range, they feel that they're off the hook. But the problem is the insulin resistance, is in, it's basically a wildfire that all this inflammation under the hood. So people still develop kidney failure, uh, heart disease, stroke, risk of dementia, cancer risk, all these things I see all the time hospital and the only common denominator is insulin uh, resistance in the form of diabetes so i think part of the problem is is the way that we define diabetes is it's more than just we, we define it by glucose but glucose. i've seen people that don't qualify as a diabetic but their insulin level is like 30 yeah can you speak to that sure 
Well, nobody, when you go to a doctor, nobody's going to check your insulin level. And if you ask for it, they tell you, they blow you off and that's kind of crazy right. and stop reading that crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so they check your A1C and your A1C is, let's say, 5.8 or 6. I was like, you know, you're pre-diabetic, no problem, no need for medication. Just kind of uh, be careful, exercise a little more, and you'll be good. Uh, and then uh, and then problem gets worse. So a couple of years later, they come back and it's, it's diabetes range. Uh, and they gained a few more. Uh, or they develop other complications or show up with a heart attack or a stroke. And they say, oh, my God, he's healthy or she's healthy, there's nothing wrong with them. Why did this happen? But it was there, it was just like, nobody, you just have to see it, the sign was there. Uh, because there is no pill for that. And that's unfortunately the truth. Now doctors not thinking in that way, they just that's what they learn. Uh, but I think underneath it all, if there's no pill for it, there's no also money in it for, for, the, for the pharmaceutical company. And then the, the focus becomes on, okay, we're just, gonna come back in six months and let's see what happens. And when you do get there, we start a pill and everybody's happy. If you check the glucose, it will look fine, especially with the fasting. When you wake up in the morning, glucose is fine. You think it's fine. But now I've seen it with people who have insulin resistance. I put a CGM on them, continuous glucose monitor, and then they have diabetes range glucose all the time, depending what they're eating. If they haven't changed their diet, that, that curve will be all over them. Um, so the problem is there. So if you check insulin, then you can detect the problem maybe 10 years even earlier. If you're fasting insulin, I mean, there are many tests, but the cheapest one is just fasting insulin. If you're starting your day when you're supposed to be the lowest at a high level, then you know it's taking more insulin to keep your glucose normal. So when your insulin, I like like four or six, that's fine. But as it rises, when your insulin level is 30 to maintain a normal glucose, that's big trouble. Yeah. Um, and you normally, most of the time, you already have central obesity. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the glucose is not is abnormal. So some people can have much higher insulin before they become, they develop diabetes. And that varies genetically from, in that perspective. But when you see Indian or uh, Asian uh, ethnicities, they don't gain a lot of weight. Like, size-wise, and, and then they just gain a little bit of visceral fat, the abdominal fat, that, that's the insulin resistance part of it, and then they quickly develop diabetes. Like, in fact, I find obesity as a protective mechanism. When people are able to gain 100 pounds before they become, develop diabetes, that means that uh, the body is picking a less of an evil. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, if you think about it, like, because if you gain 20 pounds, you develop diabetes versus 100 pounds before you develop diabetes, you got a little bit of a runway right. uh, there. So I think obesity, gaining weight is a defense mechanism by the body against the toxins bombarding yourself. The body is so smart. You just have to give it a chance. Eventually, I mean, it runs out of options. Right. So can you, obviously in your hospital practice, um, I'm going to assume that it's pretty high, but what percentage of the patients that you take care of are diseases that are lifestyle created? I'll be making up the number, but at least 60-70%. I mean, it's one thing to come in with a pneumonia and, or a broken bone or some accident, but most people, when they come in with a, when you say a heart attack or a stroke or uh, pancreas issues or liver issues, I mean, most of the time, 
I mean, underlying it all is a chronic disease, uh, right. whether known or not. So I think that without chronic diseases, uh, there is no need for that many hospitals or that many doctors or that many anything. So I think uh, at least 60, 70% is somewhat tied to underlying even cancer, because very few people come in with cancer with no other medical problems. We know obesity uh, has an increased risk of cancer, or diabetes increased risk of cancer. Yeah. Uh, people have dementia. You may say, oh, it's old age, but dementia is not normal as you age unless you know, this is a problem. It's a metabolic problem on the brain side. And it is insulin resistance driven too. Uh, so yeah, big percent. Now you're in the process of changing kind of changing your uh, practice, changing your career. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, during the pandemic, uh, everybody is in lockdown and everybody's just, uh, I kept seeing it was COVID and I was taking care of COVID. Uh, and then before vaccines, before anything, and the pattern that emerged quickly that people with obesity and diabetes were doing regardless of age. Uh, and then uh, young people who were ending up in the ICU or dying had no medical problems, but you realize they're, they're just not metabolically healthy to the trained eye. Uh, and then uh, and that kind of, and then, the, the, you know, people, the reports are coming out that obesity and diabetes is the big risk factor. And then it hit me, like, I'm already in that trajectory and I want to help people. And then uh, what can I do? And nobody's seeing anybody. So I started uh, a website and I started uh, getting active on uh, social media and slowly got some clients who were interested in improving their health. Um, and I worked with them on changing completely their lifestyle and reversing a lot of these conditions. And that slowly grew. Uh, and I uh, wanted to uh, kind of pivot and shift to a metabolic health approach. Uh, so a year and a half, that was a year and a half ago. And over the past year, I cut down on my hospital work to focus on metabolic health. And I help a lot of patients with obesity and diabetes kind of reverse things. And then just recently, I made a decision to completely leave the hospital uh, work. Uh, I love patient care. I love hospital patients. And I like to help them. But uh, I'm not, my, my uh, skill set is not meant for the hospital anymore because I can't do much. I can't change the food tray that comes for the person with diabetes worse than whatever they eat at home. Uh, you have to fix the acute issues. I cannot really make them lose weight in the hospital. I cannot make major changes. And realize there's a lot of great doctors for the hospital setting, and I'm, they're not missing any more doctors. I'm probably better in the prevention side. To, I don't want them to end up in And that's where it all started. So yeah, now I'm uh, mostly online coaching and uh, also help patients uh, come off medications and from high blood pressure, diabetes. And you can do all you, you can see patients online, correct? Correct. That's all. Yeah, that's all I do right now. Um, I don't find. I mean, it'd be nice to see people in in person, but I find online uh, within this day and age is uh, it's just as convenient. It's a lot of time saved. People can do it while at work hop on a call and talk to them. So it's, uh, it's very flexible. I like it. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. And I, I'm glad that you saw the light because um, unfortunately, like you say, our medical system is we just keep treating sick patients and treating symptoms instead of fixing problems. I mean, you know, high glucose or high insulin 
or, or even kidney disease is a symptom of a larger problem. And we need to fix the problem, not just treat the symptoms. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate you being on today. You, you are, you know, you're an inspiration. I love seeing um, doctors that have really, you know, changed, changed their focus to preventive type medicine. And, um, you know, the actual reality is, is that in our healthcare system, we have to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health, period. Yep. Uh, as doctors, as pharmacists, you know, we can be in their lives, a very small portion of it, um, really, they need to take charge of it. And we need to educate them to do that. So thank you for doing that. That's what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. So I will stream. Here's your web. Assuming that's the best way for people to get a hold of you. Yeah, metabolichealthmd.com. Uh, I have some information about myself and what kind of programs I, I run. I have some links to some podcasts I've, I've done before with uh, people. Uh, not a fancy website, but uh, it's, it's good enough. And I'm very active on uh, Twitter uh, and Instagram. Uh, and I try to post, I try to be motivational to people, keep it simple. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think people like the simple message. It is simple, but I always tell them it starts with you. Nobody's going to save you. Uh, I'm here to help you if you, but I can't make you change. You have to. That's right. So um, what, what do you have a passion for? Generally, I mean, besides uh, health, uh, I like uh, reading. I like some philosophy. No, oh, cool, 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 yeah. cool. Awesome. Uh, well, it's been yeah, it's been wonderful meeting you today. I really appreciate you taking the time to um, realize our goal in this podcast, which is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. So I think we've done that today. And um, if anybody has any questions, please reach out to Dr. Giroux. She's a wealth of knowledge. I'm super excited to uh, contact him more and, and um, learn more from him. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for coming in. Thank Dr. Giroux.